Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. A little unexpected, but uh, it's good to be back with you. Allison isn't here, conspicuous by her absence. There is a young man from the Middle East, a missionary, who is preaching at Grace Community Church in Glenrose this morning. His name is Levi Sabin. We've known him for over 20 years. And I think Allison's exact words to me were, um, I can hear you, I can listen to you preach anytime. <laughs> Love ya. And, uh, well, she's not here. But it's good to be with you, and it is a joy, as always, to open God's Word and to proclaim God's truth. And so to that end, please go back to our scripture reading as found in Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter one. And just as you are turning there, a quick question for you. What comes to mind when you hear the word marvel? Marvel. Now, some of you might be thinking of comic books and movies. Other than that, what comes to mind when you hear the word marvel? Marvelous. Some of us might be thinking of a landscape, the Grand Canyon. What a marvel to behold. Now, for some, our minds might be gravitating to some architectural feat, the Colosseum in Rome, a marvel, a work of art, Sistine Chapel, the heavens above, aurora, borealis, something of that nature, a, a, a particular music, a Handel's Messiah, something that amazes us. Something that astonishes us. Something that exceeds all of our expectations. Something, quite frankly, that shatters our mental categories. Uh, that's what we have in mind when we use the term marvel, marvelous. Did you notice, as our brother read Second Thessalonians chapter 1, that the word actually appears... In this portion of God's word. It's in the 10th verse. Look with me again just quickly at what Paul writes there. When he. That is the Lord Jesus comes on that day to be glorified. In his saints. And to be marveled at. Among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. There it is. To be marveled at. A marvel. A wonder to behold. You find the word throughout scripture. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament. We can go to ex Exodus chapter 3 for example. And there we encounter. You'll remember we have Moses. And there is Moses with his father-in-law's sheep. In the wilderness. The wilderness of Midian. He is close to the mountain of the Lord. Is at Mount Horeb. And there he is day after day, week after week, month after month with these sheep. The same ravine, the same brook, the same mountain, the same rocks, the same tree, the same bush. Hang on a second. Something different today. There's a fire in the midst of the bush. 
And Moses turns aside to get a closer look. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, as he preaches on that incident, he tells us that Moses turned aside and he marveled. Absolutely astonished. It blew his mental categories out of the water. You go to the New Testament. We have, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, don't we? The Lord Jesus. He's there on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in a boat. And he is fast asleep, his head on a pillow or a cushion or something to that effect. Suddenly the wind begins to blow. The waves begin to rise. And before the disciples know it, they find themselves in the midst of a tempest. Now remember, these are hardened, seasoned fishermen. They've spent half their lives on the sea. They've been in storms before. There's no ordinary storm. And absolutely terrified, they awaken the Lord Jesus and with a word, hush, be still. The wind disappears, the waves dissipate, and all is calm. And the disciples, what? Marveled. Absolutely astonished. One more example, Luke 24. Disciples are gathered secretly in a room, hiding, I suppose, Suddenly the doors burst open. Mary Magdalene and other women rush in, tripping over their words. Something about an empty tomb. He's not there. Linen cloths, angels, words, statements. Without another word, Peter's out the door. Lightning bolt. Faster than he's ever run before in his life. He's at the tomb. He's stooping. He's looking in. There are the linen cloths by themselves. And Peter, what? He marveled. Marveled. Well, here it is in our text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he, the Lord Jesus, comes on that day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all whom have believed. I mean, what will we see on that day? I don't want to belabor this. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what will we see on that day? I've often wondered if it will approximate John's apocalyptic vision. Right there in Revelation chapter 1. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day and he sees the ascended Christ. And his hair is like white wool. John does not say it is white wool. These are similes. Like white wool. His feet like burnished bronze his voice like the sound of many rushing waters his face like the blazing sun above and john falls down like a dead man and the lord jesus says to him fear not fear not i am the first and i'm the last i was dead and now i am alive forevermore what a marvel it will be on that day and the thing that has astonished me i mean there's plenty to astonish me in this text but what has particularly grabbed my attention the past month or two is what paul then goes on to say in verse 11 and the opening phrase in verse 11 to this end or with this in view. In other words, given what I've just said, 
What I've just said in verses 9 and 10, what I've just said about that coming day, that day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus appears, he'll be glorified in his saints. We will marvel at him with that in view. Because of that, to this end, what does he do? He prays. We always pray for you. Given that marvel that is coming, to this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to notice, what I want us to reflect upon. On the basis of this little prayer just tucked away at the end of this chapter is four reasons to marvel. It's a lengthy title. Here we go. Stay with me. Four reasons to marvel right now in anticipation of that marvel of marvels that is coming. I told you it was long. Did you get it? I'm not even sure I could repeat it. Here we go. Let me try. Four reasons to marvel. Four reasons to marvel right now. As we live in anticipation of that marvel of marvels, wonder of wonders that is coming. So there's your outline. I saw there were some kind of sermon notes in your bulletin. If you're using them, you know what to do now. You just write down one, two, three, four. I'll even give you a big hint. Each begins with God. All right. So number one, God. Number two, God. And if you just jot that down, one, two, three, four, you will be tracking with me this morning and we will unpack together this little prayer as it is found in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses 11 and 12. So here is reason number one for us to marvel right now in anticipation of that marvel of marvels that is coming Look at what Paul says in the 11th verse. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Reason number one, God calls us to salvation. There you have it. Calling. He does not use the word salvation there in the 11th verse. But just glance over the page. You're still in 2 Thessalonians. But move into chapter 2 and look with me at what Paul writes in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to this. We're in the 14th verse now to this. He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what has he called us to? He has called us to be saved. It raises an obvious question. Saved from what? Go all the way back. Flip back with me now into chapter 1 and note again what Paul says beginning in verse 7, middle of the verse. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, the same fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah, the same fire that consumed the sons of Aaron when he appears with his angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I don't know how we can state it in clearer terms, folks. The world denies it. Many professing believers live as though it's never going to happen. There is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day of judgment just on the horizon. And marvel of marvels, God has called us to salvation. Oh, I love simplicity and I strive for clarity. And let me just try to be as painfully clear as I can be. Three biblical statements. All right, just three biblical truths. Especially if you're not a believer. I'm so glad. I'm thrilled you're here. And I beg you to listen to this carefully. Just three statements from the Word of God. Here is statement number one. There is none righteous. No, not one. That means what? We have a problem. There's an issue. We are, and the Bible makes it clear, we are ruined in the sight of God. You imagine for a moment, this is completely hypothetical, but you imagine for a moment that there in my home, I have a famous painting hanging by Rembrandt. And the thing is priceless. I mean, it would sell for millions if I auctioned it off. On a Friday night, I have a bunch of dinner guests over, and while I'm out of view, one of those guests picks up a black marker and proceeds to scribble all over that famous painting. I walk into the room. I'm shocked. He perceives that I'm a little dismayed with what he has done. So he rushes over to the magazine rack, pulls a magazine out, rips out a page, grabs some glue, sticks it to the painting that has the audacity to turn to me and say, look, I fixed it. It's as good as new. Not as good as new. The painting is what? It's ruined. I know you don't want to hear this. I hate hearing this. We have to hear this. We are ruined in the sight of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Here's the second statement I want us to hear and to be very clear on this. That first one is right there. It's out of Romans 3. The second one goes back to Romans 2 and it is this. We are storing up wrath for ourselves. Romans 2 verse 5. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. We are storing up wrath for ourselves for the day of wrath to be revealed when God's righteous indignation will be revealed. We are storing up. It is literally the idea of a dam, a dam that is put in place. The rain falls, the water. What happens? It stores up. It is gathered behind the dam. Well, Paul is telling us that the water is gathering and gathering, collecting and collecting, and there is an appointed day when the dam will burst. And right now we are storing up for ourselves wrath to be revealed in the day of God's wrath. Are you with me? I know it's very unpleasant. Here becomes the mar- here comes the marvel of marvels. Back into Romans chapter three, verse twenty-five. What does Paul say? He tells us that God has put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Amen. He has put 
Christ forward, publicly displayed the Lord Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Meaning what? That as the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon Calvary's cross, he became a curse for us. And he swallowed the wrath of God in its entirety. I don't know. I find illustrations helpful. I'm a little slow at times grasping things. I heard this story years ago. It takes place in a state called Texas, West Texas, a couple of centuries ago. And apparently there was some rancher out in his field and he's on foot. And suddenly to his horror, he sees the grass fire on the horizon. The wind is blowing towards him. And so the wind is blowing the fire, the grass fire in his direction. He cannot outrun the fire that is advancing. There is no refuge. There is no place to hide. There is no way he can get away or possibly escape the raging fire. So what does that fellow do? He simply turns around his back to the fire that's coming. He takes out his lighter and he lights the grass in front of him. And what happens? The wind then blows that fire away from him. And as the fire approaches, what does he do? The rancher, he steps on that ground where the fire has already burned, the charred ground, so that when the fire reaches him, there's actually what? Nothing left to burn. Do you get it? That is, it's a fancy word, propitiation. That's it. To propitiate. It is to turn away the wrath of God. It is to appease, satisfy the wrath of God. Why? Because we are standing where his wrath has already burned. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who hung upon Calvary's cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became a curse for us. And the marvel of marvels, God now offers us this wonderful salvation. This wonderful gift, freely to be received through faith. Oh, my friends, this is something to marvel at right now. That God calls us to salvation. Here's the second reason it builds on the first. God makes us worthy of his calling. So back to our prayer. Follow what Paul is saying. To this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So God makes us worthy of his calling. He makes us. Just let it simmer there a little bit. He makes us worthy of his calling. Anyone have a problem with that? He makes us worthy of his calling. In what sense am I worthy of his calling? That seems to have a hint of merit, doesn't it? It seems to almost suggest that there is something in us that merits God's favor 
that earns God's attention to fully understand this. Go back with me, same chapter, but go back as far as verse four and look carefully at what Paul says there. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you. We exult in you in the churches of God. Now, note his twofold description for your number one, steadfastness and number two, Faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence, he says in verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The Apostle Paul is telling the Thessalonians, the Spirit of God is telling us that as we live in this fallen world and as we experience hardship, and that hardship might very well take the form of persecution as it was in the case of the Thessalonians. They're in the midst of persecution, the end of verse 4. They're enduring affliction. Whatever the case of the suffering might be, the hardship might be that in the midst of it, steadfastness, and faith, immovability and faith. These two expressions Paul latches onto that as the Thessalonians manifest steadfastness and faith in the midst of the trials and afflictions in which they find themselves, as far as God is concerned, he considers them therefore worthy of the kingdom of God. They are living in a manner that is consistent with the kingdom. They are living in a way that reflects the glory, the worth, the value of the kingdom. But we dare not think there's anything meritorious about this because return with me to the prayer in verse 11. Look very carefully at what Paul says. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. He continues the thought and may fulfill. Every resolve for good and every work of faith. How? How does he do this ultimately? By his power. Therefore, the very steadfastness of the Thessalonians, which makes them worthy of the kingdom. Paul attributes it to the working of whom? God himself. The Thessalonians' faith, which makes them worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul ascribes this faith ultimately to whom? God's and God's power. Paul is not saying that there is something inherently meritorious in their steadfastness and faith. He is pointing to these two things as confirmation of the working of God's power in their lives whereby God therefore reckons and counts them worthy of the gospel, worthy of their calling, worthy of their kingdom. When you think about it for a moment, think about it, steadfastness. Who in Scripture is the epitome of steadfastness? James 5, who am I thinking of? What does James say? You have heard, you've heard of what? The steadfastness of Job. What a man, Job, the pillar of steadfastness, really, is the same man who cried, let the day perish on which I was born. 
steadfastness? Same man who cried, why did I not die at birth? A pillar of steadfastness? Same man who cried, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. James makes no mention of that. More to the point, God makes no mention of it. And God holds forth Job as a pillar of steadfastness, whose every resolve God fulfilled by the working of his power. Faith, who comes to mind? Quick, who's the pillar of faith? Especially if you're reading Paul's epistles. Who's the man? Abraham. What do we read of Abraham in Romans chapter 4? No unbelief. No unbelief made Abraham waver. He's just a pillar, immovable, a rock. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Really, are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? Got one word for you. Hagar. Paul's a pillar of faith? Yes, because God himself fulfilled Abraham, a pillar of faith, yes, because God himself fulfilled every resolve for good by his power, thereby making Abraham, thereby making Job, thereby making every Old Testament saint, every New Testament saint, every believer here this morning included worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of the gospel, worthy of our calling to salvation. Thomas Manton, an old Puritan, he put it so well, when the inclination of the heart is right, the infirmities of God's people are not mentioned. You write that one out and put it on your refrigerator at home. When the inclination, the bent of our hearts is right, the infirmities of God's people are not mentioned. My friend, that is a marvel to hold on to. Because you know what? I have plenty of frailties. I have plenty of weaknesses. And I could make a list of failures the length of my arm. But how encouraging it is to know that my God fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. And he is so pleased because he is pleased with us as he is pleased with his son, the Lord Jesus. He is so pleased with every resolve for good and every work of faith. Little Freddie, I don't know, excuse me, first name that came to mind. Freddie, three years of age, your son comes to you. And he's got his little painting that he's just completed. Finger painting. And he hands it to you, big smile on his face. And the dreaded question comes, what is it? He asks you. Uh, the right answer is this. Um, I want to hear it from you in your own words. That's the right answer, parent. You can thank me for that later. I want to hear it from you in your own words. And he tells you and he shares it with you. And you take that little painting and where does it go? It's obligatory. 
on the refrigerator. The magnet hatches it. You need to keep it up there for at least a year, isn't it? And you fasten it to that refrigerator. You hear the words. It's upside down. You turn it right side up. Just trying to get every vantage point. Don't worry about that. You don't begin to critique that work of art. You don't begin to point out the 101 ways in which it could be better. You don't take out a pencil and start scribbling all all over that thing to try to make it look more like whatever it's supposed to look like. You accept it from that little fellow. And you accept it as an expression of his heart and you delight in it. Those are our works, folks. Our Father does not need our works. Our Father gains nothing from our works. Certainly gains nothing from our efforts. And our works and our efforts are so feeble in the sight of God. But this is the marvel of marvels. This is the wonder of wonders. He delights over his children. And he delights over us because he delights in Christ. And my every resolve for good. And my every work of faith. By his power in ways I don't necessarily even conceive. He brings to fruition. He brings to fulfillment. Whereby in his estimation... He regards me, faith and steadfastness, as worthy of my calling to salvation. That is something to wonder at. And here is the third reason to wonder or marvel in anticipation of that marvel of marvels that is yet to come. Number three, God glorifies the name of the Lord Jesus in us and does in him. How does he do it? By his grace. I'm not making it up. It's the 12th verse. So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps the starting point for understanding this is what, the, what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 7, somewhere around there. Man is the image and glory of God. Man is the image and glory of God. Woman, the glory of man. Start with the second half of that sentence. A woman, the glory of man. A wife, the glory of her husband. What is Paul saying? I think he's at least saying this. You imagine for a moment you're meeting a young man for the first time. He's in his mid-twenties. And he is uh, well-presented, well-dressed, well-groomed, well-spoken, well-mannered. You got it? He says to you, would you like to meet my wife? And he walks you across the other side of the room, and there she is, three times his age. She's not well-dressed. She's poorly dressed. She's not well-spoken. She's poorly spoken. She's not well-mannered. She's downright ill-mannered. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Honestly, folks, this is a mismatch. There's something wrong here. Why? Because what do we expect? We expect husband and wife to mirror one another. We expect a wife to reflect the glory of her husband and vice versa. And this is the road Paul is taking us down there in 1 Corinthians 11. That just as the wife is the glory of her husband, and so you expect to some extent the wife to mirror her husband, more to the point, we are the glory of God Almighty. We're created in His image. A mirror to reflect what? His righteousness, his goodness, his holiness. What has happened? 
Think of it. You're standing in front of the mirror. You can see the reflection. You take a can of paint, throw it on the mirror. You add some muck and mire for good measure. And you might still be able to see some kind of reflection or image in there. But for all intents and purposes, you can no longer see the true image reflected through the mirror. That's what's happened to us. We were created to reflect, mirror the glory of God. Paul tells us all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. In Christ, what is being restored, renewed. It's amazing. The glory of God. I don't know you very well, folks, but I know you well enough that this amazes me to think of some of you as reflecting the glory of God. And I hope it amazes you equally so to think of me someday actually mirroring the glory of God. Righteousness, holiness, and goodness. It was J.N. Darby, he put it so well. And is it so? I shall be like your son. And is it so? And is it so? I shall be like your son. Is this the grace which he for me has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought. In glory. To his own blessed likeness brought. My friends, that is a reason to marvel right now. What God is doing with us. And what God has in store for us. And what exactly God's ultimate plan and purpose for us is. That we might be conformed to the image the likeness of His Son. He who reflects God perfectly, the Lord Jesus. That we in turn might be conformed to His likeness, us glorified in Him, He glorified in us. That for all eternity we might fulfill the original purpose for which we were created. To glorify our great God. And here now is the fourth and final reason to marvel right now. It's a short one. Three words. God is ours. Where do I get that out of the text? Well, read it again carefully with me, the prayer. To this end, we always pray for you that... Oh, there it is. See it? Our... First person possessive, plural, our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of what our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not convinced, go all the way back to verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You read it throughout the epistle. You read it throughout all of Paul's letters. You read it throughout all of Scripture. Our God. 
There's a dual emphasis in the expression. You just have it there in your mind's eye. Our God. Begin, put the emphasis on the second word. Our God. Who is this God? Who is this being who belongs to us? You travel with me back just for a moment. Go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. And you picture there Moses again in the wilderness and Moses coming face to face with that burning bush and hearing the voice take the sandals from off your feet for the ground upon which you stand is holy. And there is Moses shaking before the burning bush and God commissions him to return to Egypt to lead his children out of Israel. Oh, they'll want to know your name. And you remember the cry that comes to him from the midst of the bush. What is God's name? This is it, folks. It sums it up in its entirety. I am. And what is God declaring to Moses? Simply this. I am the one who is. I am the one who is. Or as the psalmist declares, and it was our opening psalm out of Psalm 145. Great is the Lord. And his greatness is what? unsearchable it is the limited trying to grasp the limitless one the bound trying to grasp the boundless one the finite trying to grasp the infinite we speak of the infinite we're not in reference to god we are not speaking of a mathematical term we're referring to the glorious truth that our god is without limitations he simply is i am He is without limitations when it comes to his being. We describe that as his aseity, meaning what? He has life in himself. He is not dependent nor contingent on anything outside of himself. He gathers nothing, benefits nothing from anything out of himself. There is nothing that impacts or influences God. All life in himself, limitless in his being. And he's limitless when it comes to space. We call that ubiquity, omnipresence. That where is God? He's everywhere. He fills all places at all times, yet is limited to none. And all things exist in him. And we speak of God being infinite in terms of time. We are referring to the fact that he is limitless. He is eternality. There is no beginning. There is no end. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. I had a college student ask me just a couple of years ago, what was God doing before the creation of the world? My response, that isn't a question. It's absolutely nonsensical. There is no moment prior to the first moment, which is Genesis 1-1. There is no such thing as eternity past or eternity present. God is beyond all succession of time. He dwells in one indivisible point called eternity. He is the I am. Our God. And move the emphasis then. Go from God, shift it to that first person, possessive, plural, pronoun. Our God. It's the fulfillment of the great covenant promise, isn't it? I will be their God. And they will be what? My people. 
Go all the way back. You can't do any better than Exodus 3. Go back again to Exodus 3. There's Moses, knees knocking before the burning bush and this great declaration of God's name, I am. And yes, God conveying to him, I am the one who is. But conveying secondarily of utmost importance, he says it to Moses, I am the one who will be with you. The one who is the great, infinite, incomprehensible, limitless God, creator of all things. I am. I am the one who will be with you. Now, I often think my uh, father-in-law, I guess he was in his mid-80s at the time. This would have been, oh, going back 15 years. And our oldest, Laura, she was maybe four or five at the time. My father-in-law, his mid-80s. And he knew he was not going to be around for much of her life at all. And so he took pen in hand and took out some three-ring binder paper. And he proceeded to write a three-, four-page letter for her to be read on her 16th birthday. I have often wondered to myself, what went through the man's mind as he penned those words? What was he thinking? I've often thought to myself, if I had to do that, and if I had to write a letter for a loved one to be read after I was gone, what would I say? You'll find this hard to believe. I'd be at a loss for words. Wouldn't know where to begin. How How do you convey what you feel? How do you communicate in such a way To reach out and touch someone after years have passed, after you're gone, to convey, to communicate, to transmit in some way your love, your care, your concern. It's beyond me. But you know, you go to Matthew chapter 28, right at the end. And the Lord Jesus, just prior to his ascension, he wants to leave his disciples with something that will last. Something that will make an impression. Something that will echo echo through the corridors of time and convey to them the most marvelous truth known to man. You know it. You've probably read it a hundred times. What does he say to them? I am. I am. I am with you always. I am with you always not the best translation don't want to get too technical but it's not the best translation you know what a literal translation is i am with you all the days good days bad days i've had a few right uplifting encouraging exhilarating days and downright discouraging crippling debilitating days sunny days not a cloud in the sky Wind in my sails, stormy, cloudy, rainy, hurricane-like days. I am with you all the days. Our God. And my friends, I submit to you, that is a reason to marvel right now. Even as we live in anticipation of the marvel of marvels to come, 
the appearing of our blessed God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father. May you impress these marvels deep upon our hearts. May you impart not only understanding this day, but enlarge our hearts to receive and to wonder at the truth of your word, the glory of your name, and your abounding goodness to us. We do confess, our Father, that at times our hearts are captured by so many things. And oh, how we long that our hearts would be captured by you, by you alone. May Christ be exalted this day in our hearts, in our estimation. And we pray this for his glory. We pray it for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we pray it in his matchless name. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.